to America now. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Either you're with us or you're with the terrorists. If you've got health care already, then you can keep your plan if you are satisfied with it. Donald Trump is not going to be president of the United States. Take it to the bank. Together, we will make America great again. We shall never surrender. Never it's what you've been waiting for all day. Buck Sexton with America Now. Join the conversation. Call Buck toll-free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. Sharp mind, strong voice. Buck Sexton. Terrorists hit us again, based on all the reports we've seen so far in, in Paris. Uh, we have one police officer in Paris, killed another innocent uh, bystander, wounded in an exchange of gunfire between uh, an apparent terrorist. We have the Islamic State, uh, according to the New York Post here, claiming uh, responsibility for the attack. One police officer killed. I saw initial reports of an AK-47 in the hands of this terrorist in Paris. Uh, we'll get into this more in a moment, but just that's the the main story that's still breaking here throughout the day. We'll give you details on it, and we'll do some analysis of that together. Also, President Trump giving a press conference today with the Prime Minister of Italy. We talked about a whole range of policy issues that we will get into, including, of course, next week. He's hoping there'll be a vote on health care. He's also saying that he is pushing Congress to do something about the debt ceiling. Uh, and there's some discussion of foreign policy as well as uh, talking about Libya and Iran. We'll we'll spend some time on Libya uh, later on. I'm sorry, spend some time on Iran later in the show uh, for sure. And then also some other uh, odds and ends news of the day. What what would health care reform look like? Uh, the latest on Ann Coulter being banned from Berkeley by the Antifa movement of lunatic leftists. Uh, Stephen Colbert gets nasty about O'Reilly. Uh, we've got some more details on the doomed Hillary Clinton campaign. Uh, GOP leaders, as, as I said before, on the health care deal. We'll talk a bit about that. And maybe if I have time, uh, asylum seekers crossing into Canada, Americans losing money, uh, losing sleep rather, over money issues. A lot more to talk about today than I'm going to have time for, but Back to this uh, breaking news of a terrorist attack that happened uh, just hours ago uh, in in Paris. Uh, this comes in advance of a major election in France. But here's what uh, President Trump had to say earlier today. First of all, our condolences from our country to the people of France again it's happening, it seems. I just saw it as I was walking in, so that's a terrible thing, and it's a very, very terrible thing that's going on in the world today, but it looks uh, like another terrorist attack, and uh, what can you say? It just never ends. We have to be strong, and we have to be vigilant, and I've been saying it for a long time. It seems that this falls uh, within what we've seen before from some of these attacks, and in fact, there have been attacks here in the homeland, including of a uh, hatchet-wielding man who went after one of the NYPD, one of the New York City Police Department 
in the name of the Islamic State, uh, ISIS has told its adherents, its followers all over the world, that they should act on their own in jihad. So it has a means of mobilizing jihadists who have no specific connection to the group whatsoever. Um, It is also notable here that the jihadists in this case, from what we've seen, was able to get a, a Kalashnikov or some Kalashnikov variant for this attack. And while we we are um, mourning with the French people the loss of a police officer and also the psychological impact of this incident right near the Champs-Élysées, uh, the avenue, the most famous avenue uh, in Paris, in France, and uh, world-renowned, this is a place that you would strike at if you were a jihadist terrorist because of the fame associated with it. This is what you would do. Uh, You would make sure that you hit against a target that the Islamic State is always uh, encouraging its followers to go after police. The first line of defense in any uh, society against criminality and and oftentimes against terrorism. Uh, Go after the police. Do it in a crowded, well-known area, uh, do it very publicly. Uh, I, but as we mourn with the, the French uh, and this this incident on their soil, we've seen much worse, of course, in terms of casualties, whether at the day or the night of the uh, horrific attacks at the Bataclan Theater and at the Stade de France, uh, the enormous uh, stadium where just outside there were suicide bombers who detonated. I mean, you had o- over... 100 casualties that night. You also had over a dozen uh, murdered in Charlie Hebdo's offices uh, sometime before that. So France has been hit with major terrorist attacks over the last 18 months, and they are jihadist attacks that also tie into the refugee flow, to the perceptions of an Islamizing influence uh, in France, a a jihadist campaign against the French people, uh, the hardliners within uh, within Islam, the hardline or the jihadists within Islam, hate the French and have for a long time for a whole bunch of reasons. French identity and French uh, nationalism, and I don't say here we say nationalism, and it's everyone's ears perk up, and they think that it must be some kind of a pejorative in the French context. They're very proud of their nation, and French nationalism and the love of French language and culture has come into conflict with those who believe that they can bring a religious and political and social system with them into a new country, in this case, of course, France, and those bringing it are from Islamic countries, uh, that clashes with the host country culture. You can say a lot of things about the French. One thing they're not is uh, sheepish about the greatness, historical and otherwise, of their culture. So jihad has been visited upon France far too many times in the last uh, couple of years and stretching back actually for for decades. And um, you could even look at some of the origins of the modern Islamic terrorism we see today, some of the similarities in tactics and uh, with the battle of Algiers, a very worthwhile movie that I would recommend to any of you who have a time to see it, uh, where they had women who were placing bombs in crowded marketplaces as a means of making the French leave, killing civilians. Uh, So their terrorist attack today in France is right in line with what we've seen from the Islamic State in the past. Uh, We 
are in a sense lucky and i know it's such a bizarre way to look at any terrorist incident when there's especially when there's a loss of life but that only one person was killed and that you have an apparent jihadist here in one of the most crowded parts of uh, among the most famous cities in the world that only one person was killed that he went that he chose to go after police officers and or chose to go after a police officer i'm sure he intended to kill more instead of just the soft target of a a congregation of civilians, is likely why you did not have dozens of people killed in this incident. Back when I was uh, in the NYPD Intelligence Division, we would look at cases that we were working on and also go over case studies uh, in the past as a means of trying to understand how does the terrorist, how does the jihadist think and approach what the attacks of the future will look like. Uh, and as as part of that, we would always try to deal with the reality of jihadism visited uh, on us and our allies, you know, these, these uh, horrific attacks that go for just populated areas, that, that don't have a, a symbolic significance attached to the target set, that aren't going after a defended target, at least police are armed. In this case, it turned into a shootout. Um, I would imagine that this specific, uh, in this case, and I've also seen the reports, I should note that this person was known to the uh, known to the authorities uh, as, a, as a possible extremist. So no, no surprises here. And we have a replay of all of the same themes and debates that we have seen so many times in the past. What can we do in a free society in order to prevent this kind of jihadism? How do we stop someone who is ideologically aligned with a global death cult from killing innocent people as part of the strategy that this death cult, uh, in this case, named the Islamic State, but the same thing really as al-Qaeda and all of it under the general umbrella of uh, jihadism, of militant or radical Islam. Uh, what can we do about this and how can we confront it? And the truth is that it's a continued, it's continued vigilance and also an understanding that this is a war against civilization. That is what they are fighting. What we think of as civilization, which is, yes, technological advancement, but first and foremost, uh, civil society, rule of law, uh, they don't believe in this. They they want to destroy this. They want to replace it with something else. And so anything that is destructive and rips apart that which binds us together in uh, in the civilized world, it's not even just Western civilization, it's the civilized world, uh, jihadists will continue to strike at. Uh, this attack was not mass casualty, thank heavens. The next one might be. Uh, how do we prevent this or stop this? I often get that question, and I, I wish I could say there was a real answer. Um, but we certainly should be willing to name the enemy. And in that sense, this administration, the Trump administration, is leaps and bounds ahead of what we have with the Obama administration before it. They're not uh, completely controlled by the dictates of political correctness. They don't sit around thinking about, well, will I sound like I'm taking the acceptable progressive professorial tone about this latest jihadist attack. And instead, they just say what it is. Um, it is a not just a gesture, but it is also uh, of strategic significance. 
because understanding what side you're on in a war of ideas is essential if you have any hope of winning it. Uh, And beyond that, uh, I think there is a possibility that this administration, based on what Donald Trump says on a regular basis, including uh, today, that they will destroy some of the symbols of jihadism in its current incarnation uh, so that there's less of this clarion call around the world for loners, lone wolves, psychopathic jihadists, whatever you want to call them and whatever is the most appropriate designation on a case-by-case basis. Um, The president wants to take the fight to these bad guys and those who are in key national security positions, I believe, also want to take the fight to these bad guys, wherever they may be. And that will be a welcome change, I think, from trying to downplay and ignore the threat in the past. So I want to get to the other issues that uh, came up today in the press conference. Donald Trump giving us really a roadmap of major policy issues they will be tackling. They'll be tackling in the uh, days and weeks ahead. 844-900-2825. Any thoughts on the Trump anti-terrorism policies that he's talked about and we've seen so far or anything else you want to hit, uh, light them up. 844-900-BUCK. Team, we'll be right back. These bonds of history and culture have only grown stronger as our two nations have become close partners, dear friends, and very vital allies. Mr. Prime Minister, I'm thrilled that you are here today to discuss how we can make this great relationship even more productive in the years to come. President Trump speaking to Prime Minister uh, Gentiloni there. Uh, And, look, our relationship with Italy is good, no surprises, and I'm sure Trump and and Gentiloni are going to be fast friends. Uh, But then we get into some of the, the policy. You could call them policy previews. Uh, from the president here. First off, health care, which I, we've covered so much of the health care debate, the recent health care debate on this show, because it matters so very much to all of us. And uh, I, I finally started to see some articles out there written by uh, journalists, fellow pundits and media where they're like, look, I just want to be able to buy a policy that makes sense, that I can understand, that I can afford and that covers me for serious illness. And, and, and I don't want to be paying for everyone else's uh, stuff that I don't need, you know, I, I'm willing to pay, I'm willing to pay the same way that I pay for other insurance where it is a hedge against risk. I pay X amount of dollars in the, so that in the unlikely event that I need a lot of money for something, it's there for me, but I'm probably not going to use it. That's insurance. That is not what we have. As you know, we have a complex system of government mandates, subsidies, and redistribution of wealth masquerading as health insurance. It's not health insurance, really. That's a component of it, but it's it goes much, much deeper than that. And it was disappointing. And, and I, I know that I, I uh, will feel the wrath of some of my beloved listeners who are uh, just completely on board for whatever the administration uh, is offering up. But the first go at this healthcare thing was not good. Now, we can say it was mostly Paul Ryan, and I would agree. We could say that the House should have had this, and I agree. But if Trump is going to lead on the issue, we need to know that this is 
a really good plan. And he's not just telling us that this is a good plan because he's trying to help out his buddies in the Republican Congress. Uh, he said that health care, well, it's going to be a plan that comes out. There'll be a plan that comes out soon. Well, I think we are going to have a big win soon because we're going to have health care, and I believe that's going to happen. And, you know, there was no, like, loss with health care. This is just a constant negotiation, and the plan is getting better and better all the time. Now, I, I want to take the president at his word there. The plan is getting better and better all the time. We are told there may be a vote on this next week. I, I find that hard to believe, but not not the president's wrong. I just feel like the Congress will find a way. You know, Congress never misses an opportunity to miss an opportunity. I, I don't see this GOP Congress, which is far from a, well, a well-oiled machine. It's By the way, it's not just the hang-ups and the problems of the bureaucratic machinery of the legislature, right? They can tell you all, hey, you know, to uh, make some sausage, you know, it's tough, and you don't want to see the sausage-making process, and you don't want to look into the kitchen of a you know, of a fast food restaurant and all, all the hackneyed analogies they can offer up. The reality here is it's not just the process that's the problem. It is the substance. There are Republicans who don't want to go ahead with this. Uh, and they, they don't want to re- they don't want to repeal and replace Obamacare, not just because they're worried about what comes next, but uh, they don't want to take away some of the goodies that Obamacare has been giving out to their constituencies, even if in the long run. You know, there are a lot of people, if I said, look, your health care will be so much better in five years and your plan will be affordable and everything will be in better shape in five years if uh, if right now you're willing to forego some of the benefits that Obamacare has just mandated, but not they're not market based, they're mandate based. This is what the government gives you because the government says this is what you get. Uh, a lot of people wouldn't take that wouldn't take that bargain. You know, but hear what the president said, and I want us all to, going back to this, take him at his word. He says the plan keeps getting better. It's a constant negotiation. Those are his words. This is just a constant negotiation. Okay. Well, that means that those of us who have a, who want to make our voices heard on this should not feel sheepish at all about saying, hey, let's make this health care plan better. Here's why the last time around what Paul Ryan was trying to push through in the Congress was unacceptable. Here's why it wasn't strong enough. Here's how it can be better. And we should do that without people feeling like that is somehow uh, disloyal either to the Republican Party, which I think is less offensive to a lot of folks right now, or unfair to the administration. I know you have the 100 days, this arbitrary benchmark we put in place comes due next week of 100 days in office. I think it's next Saturday will be the 100th day. Uh, I would just like to see movement in the right direction and reassurances that those of us who had problems with what what look it was Obamacare light it was Obamacare 2.0 those were not unfair criticisms of this it did not remove critical architecture of the Obama oh, Obamacare law and it didn't give us good reasons as to why and then it undermined the reasons it gave us and they had you know y- you had one job Congress well not really but you had one big job. For the last seven years, the Republicans uh, get ready for this moment, and the first time out, they certainly messed it up. Now they're saying the second time out they'll do a better job. We will have to see. Uh, you think they'll vote on this? What do you think they're going to do? 844-900-2825. We will take some calls. I'll be right back. He spreads freedom because freedom's not going to spread itself. Buck Sexton is back. I wasn't going to do this, but I was in Wisconsin the other day, 
And I want to end and add, I wasn't going to do this, but I was in Wisconsin the other day. And I want to end and add by saying that Canada, what they've done to our dairy farm workers, is a disgrace. It's a disgrace. I spent time with some of the farmers in Wisconsin. And as you know, rules, regulations, different things have changed. And our farmers in Wisconsin and New York State are being put out of business, our dairy farmers. And that also includes what's happening along our northern border states with Canada, having to do with lumber and timber. The fact is, NAFTA, whether it's Mexico or Canada, is a disaster for our country. So, the President, that was uh, yesterday. He was in Wisconsin, uh, and you had that whole buy, uh, buy, Ameri- buy American, hire American executive order. He was talking about dairy farmers there, and, and while I could make a cheesy comment about not crying over spilt milk, you see what I did there? Uh, it, I, I wanted to learn about this a little bit because I'm a, I'm a, a big uh, milk drinker. I'm actually a fan of drinking whole milk, which people are, oh, only, only, you know, growing girls and boys should drink whole milk. And so I think whole milk is great. I drink it all the time. I think it's fantastic. I also think that butter is in reasonable amounts good for you. I don't believe all of this conventional wisdom out there about dairy and, oh, too much dairy. And I know I'm going to get some... Sometimes the vegans, when they hear this, are so mean. They send me, you know, they they send me a, like a, a a gif of a diseased heart or something that I like, can't beat it. I'm like, whoa, you know, it's unnecessary. But if they think that dairy is is like uh, is enslavement of of cows, and they think that meat is murder, and so they get pretty they get pretty intense about this stuff. But I'm I'm a big uh, fan of of drinking milk. Milk and chocolate are two of my favorite things on the planet. This is all uh, well, of course, Trump is is beating the drum on NAFTA once again, saying it's a terrible trade deal. Uh, It should be updated. I think it's unfair to say it's a terrible trade deal. Um, And Trump's protectionism is going to continue to be a place where he runs into trouble with the free trade conservative wing of the Republican Party, which seems to be dwindling these days. I'm noticing some folks, and I'm not going to name names. This this is like... uh, it's like when Alex Jones actually figured out that I was CIA because it says it on my official bio, and he was like waving around a piece of paper. He's like, "I'm not gonna name names. I, I'm I'm not gonna name names. I mean, Buck Sexton, but I'm not gonna I'm not gonna name names." And I was like, "Why? Why are you naming me if you're not gonna name? That's not cool." Uh, but back to the the milk and the dairy issue here. Uh, it has to do with creating uh, class seven for a new. A, a new class of milk because of the protein-heavy concentrate that is used to make cheese. I don't know. Oh, I mean, basically, the Canadians have some mechanism for their supply to manage their supply, and they have this system in place that some say gives them an unfair advantage over U.S. dairy farmers. I, I, Trump is down. He's down in the weeds in this one, but it's part of the general theme. So I'm trying to learn about how this affects dairy farmers and it doesn't seem to me to be clear really that one side or the other is totally right ultra filtered milk is what it's what it is called which that doesn't i want is if the milk doesn't have all of like the fat in it i don't really want it but that's a whole separate discussion all right i got a lot of you calling in i want to take some and then we're gonna move on to another topic or some of the other issues that trump hit today in his press conference i just wanted to talk about that wisconsin nafta thing for a second because I'm not really clear to me what 
Trump is going to do on trade yet, other than talk about how the last deal was bad. All right. I can, let, let, let's concede that NAFTA is problematic. At a minimum, needs updating. Okay, and, and dairy farmers, yeah, dairy farmers are getting the, the, the small end of the dairy pail. I don't know. I tried to get something there, but I got nothing. Um, but anyway, uh, John in Ohio. Oh, sorry, but I, I need to know more about what Trump's policies are going to be. John in Ohio on WWVA. Thanks for calling in. How you doing, Buck? Good. I've, I've heard you a couple times, but this is my first time calling in. Well, thank you for calling in, sir. Welcome to the team. Hey, uh, I just want to add about the uh, debate over whether or not to use that phrase. Which radical one? Islam. Radical Islam. Yes, sir. Obama did explain several times why he didn't want to use that phrase publicly. Are you aware of that explanation? Uh, yeah. Yeah, that, he, he, that, said, he says that it's not as Well, I mean, he also said that the Islamic State is neither Islamic nor a state. He, he believes that it's not that he's in a position to tell people who are Islamists or jihadists, and I don't know if you're familiar with the distinction between the two, Islamists are people who want to impose Sharia law and an Islamic political system on everyone, themselves and, and everyone around the world, actually. Jihadists are people that will use force against civilians, terrorism, to try and achieve that goal um, as part of a holy war. So the president believed that people that have, that do that aren't Islamic, that's his, and that it gives them too much credit, and that it is mean to the rest of the Muslim community, and so he just decided not to use it. Am I am I missing anything? Uh, yes. What am I missing? Um, one, he said that he said that jihadists wanted a war against Islam. Period, against all of Islam. And two, he said that he believes that failing to make the distinction between radical Islam and using the phrase radical Islam often leads some people to believe that Islam in general is the problem. Well, that's okay. Well, this, this is this is wrong on both counts because the failure of distinction comes at the moment you won't actually call something what it is. I mean, we, we can call Al-Qaeda whatever we want, right? But we shouldn't try to pretend that they're not able to establish what their own goals are, why they're doing what they do. That's just an, That's just fact. And when you're looking at jihadists all over the world who who is the president of the united states to tell them what they are that's a that's a fascinating that's, no, that's that's not that's not what i said i said that jihadists want a war against islam in general so so we, so we think we're going to prevent that war by not, by not calling them by not referring to radical islam i mean th think about that i don't think you're i don't think you're necessarily going to prevent that war by not calling it radical islam publicly but I do believe that. But radical Islam that, is a distinction. You understand that radical Islam is that, not Islam. It is radical Islam, right? So, so you can. This would be like saying but, but an, an an ultra right conservative party in Germany, let's say, is different from a conservative party, right? We can understand these are distinctions that are made in language with an important purpose. So you're so the president's the president's decision and others along with him, the Democrats, and by the way, people in the intelligence community that. Generally speaking, I respect and know what they're talking about are all also of the same mind that you shouldn't pretend that this has no roots in Islam whatsoever. I mean, that's kind of a, it's kind of laughable, actually. The president would do Nobody that. Nobody is pretending that. Well, then why no, not? Why not use the phrase? You're, you're, you're trying to say that. I mean, this is going on. Whether, this is going on whether the president says it's going on or not. So why would you not use the phrase? It's the evil that you cannot speak its name. I mean, it's Voldemort from the Harry Potter books. That's bizarre. OK, I'm going to. 
I'll, I'll, I'll make the second point more clearly, but first let me, let me address yours really quickly. Do you actually believe that the previous administration, because they didn't want to use that phrase publicly, do you actually believe that there are people working behind the scenes were not aware of of the of the strong link between radical Islam and terrorism. No, but your your, your, your question is your question is irrelevant. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is the president's refusal to do it for reasons of one domestic political correctness uh, was cowardice, and and also to people around the world when they see that the president won't even, and I mean within the Muslim community who are trying to reform their faith, who are trying to work on rule of law issues, on democratization, on doing all the things that we would like to see them do so that they can have better and decent societies, when they see the leader of the free world pretending that this is not a problem, that there's not a civil war going on right now in Islam between Sunni and Shia, that there's not a civil war going on right now around the world between Muslims who are reformers and, and Muslims who are plural pluralists in the societies they want to live in versus those who believe that there can only be one faith, one approach, one political system, and we all know what that looks like because we see uh, we see shades of it in Saudi Arabia and in Syria and elsewhere. So why not? Why disempower those people by pretending that it has nothing to do with them or not First speaking all, that, about it? That's been ad- addressed by the previous administration many times. Now, let me just make. By, wait, can I ask you a question, though? No, 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 no. I'm not I'm not done with you. This is very important. Why did Hillary Clinton say radical Islam on the campaign trail over and over again? She was President Barack Obama's secretary of state. She said it over and over again. Why did she say it? You're asking me why she did say it? Yeah, why did she say it? Maybe because Could it be a repudiation of Barack that, Obama's right? dumb policy to not say it because she realized that it was it, nonsense? She was his secretary it, of state. Strategy. Well, I'm sorry, what? That, that's easy. If she said it, if she said it, it's probably because she disagreed with Obama on that particular strategy. Well, why, well but I mean, why would she disagree with Obama? You're telling me that this was such a good idea. This was his own secretary of state. I mean, what what bigger repudiation of this bizarre wordsmithing that Obama engaged in could you have than the front runner for the Democratic nomination, who had been his secretary of state, using the very phrase that he it's not avoided? It's a strategy. Some people agree with it. Some people don't. Now, let me get to the second point that I've been trying to make. He also believed that by using that phrase publicly, some people hear that word Islam and fail to make the distinction because they don't pay enough attention. And there is some truth to that. Right. So, so Obama can't speak openly about an issue because he thinks that people are too dumb to understand what real words mean. I mean, that's that's a pretty is, condescending point of view, don't you think? I think that's a there is evidence to support that many people are, in fact, too dumb to make that distinction. And I, I, now you're deciding evidence that I've never heard of, never read. And, and, and I would need to see a study oh, that says on, that people are too people are too dumb to know what i mean this is like this is like why we always have to sit around and say look i mean we know a vast majority of muslims are are peaceful we all know this you're not going to let me make my point are you hence the documented and admitted spike in hate crimes against muslims in general that's not by the way that 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 is always that is always no, no no see see i've actually dealt with this issue from people who take your point of view on TV, who are supposed to be the the, 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 luminar- the luminaries of this issue, and they cite things like someone looking at. Go to the Huffington Post. Look after the French attack, uh, the the, uh, the attack in France at the Bataclan Theater. They started a hate crime counter. They stopped it after a while. Do you know why? Because they weren't getting the numbers that they assumed that they would get of hate crimes against Muslims in this country. And people pointed out that things like someone saying something mean or an anonymous phone call somewhere to a mosque isn't really a hate crime worthy of national political coverage. Burning a mosque is a hate crime. Are you not aware of this spike? 
Oh, I'm sorry. Are what is a hate crime? The recent spike. What, Are you what, not what? clear of the recent spike in mosque burnings? And we're talking like past six, seven months. How many how many mosques have been burned down in this country in the last six or seven months? That, by the way, now don't include the ones that were burned down by a Muslim, which happened in Texas, to raise awareness about the spike in hate crimes that you seem to believe happened, even though it doesn't. Don't include that one. Don't include. That oh no, one. don't. We, we shouldn't now, include that one because that one that one would be kind of weird to include because that would be a, a self hate crime. But if it's so widespread, why would someone have to commit a self-hate crime? I'm just wondering. Why would someone have to do that? I'm curious. Can't they pick from any of the innumerable other ones? They're always going to have people in every group who are trying to draw attention to their point by staging an event. In order to blame the opposition, you're always going to have people that do that. But are no, I, I don't. I don't think you're always going to have people do that. I think you have that in a culture of victimology, and in a country where one major political party thinks that as long as they can establish some means of oppression narrative, that's much more important than actually dealing with the reality, which is that we face a substantial, but small percentage-wise, but substantial segment of one faith tradition that will take up violence as part of a global jihad. I would love to continue talking about this, but I actually have to go no, into a, a break. A and a, that I is, that I, I literally have to go into a break. But thank you for calling in, and we'll be right back. Those of you who called in who were uh, patiently waiting to get on there, sorry that that went, uh, went a bit longer. I thought it was uh, an, an, interesting, an interesting exchange to have, mirrored exchanges that I've had in the past at CNN. So I just want to talk about the dairy industry and, you know, uh, ultra-filtered milk, and then all of a sudden i got to talk about all this jihad stuff. I guess that happens. Uh, so a few things from the uh, a few things from the press conference earlier today between the Italian Prime Minister, uh, Prime Minister Gentiloni, and the, well, and of course our president, and they talked a bit about how everyone has to pay their fair... <laughs> wow, he did say pay their fair share. Full, uh, full and fair share. He didn't say pay their fair share. That would be a little too uh, Obamaist, I think, um, even for for this for this president to pull off. Uh, but he said, everyone, when it comes to NATO, well, they're going to have to chip in a bit more. As we reaffirm our support for historic institutions, we must also reaffirm the requirement that everyone must pay their full and fair share for the cost of defense. Full and fair share for the cost of defense. I don't think we're ever going to get more money uh, out of our NATO partners, especially money that they haven't been paying in the past. It's really the the 2% of GDP figure is a guideline. It is not an enforceable, it's not an enforceable contract in any sense. Uh, So that's just, it's nice that we're trying to get them to live up to what they said they would try to live up to. But when you don't have any mechanism in place that would really allow for it, you're kind of left You're kind of left um, using persuasion when you don't have much more to go on than that. But, you know, Trump makes good deals. Maybe he'll uh, pull it off, um, and uh, we'll see. But let's, let's talk a bit about uh, Libya for a second as well. Uh, play clip uh, 64, please. Your role in Libya... I think the United States has right now enough roles. We're in a role everywhere. So I do not see that. I do see a role in getting rid of ISIS. We're being very effective in that regard. We are doing a job with respect to ISIS that has not been done anywhere near the numbers that we're 
producing right now. It's a uh, it's a very effective force we have. We have no choice. It's a horrible thing to say, but we have no choice. And says we have no choice on dealing with the Islamic State. Now there has been some. Uh, it, it should be noted that the president, uh, the current president, has inherited an anti-ISIS policy from the previous president, or at least anti-ISIS uh, systems that are in place, whether it's what's going on to retake Mosul from the Islamic State, which is nearing completion now in Iraq, the air campaign or the assistance to YPG, the Kurdish militias in Syria. Uh, th- those were underway by the time this president took office. Uh, but as is often the case in these counterinsurgency operations, against terrorist jihadist groups, the the first phase, we may be successful. Uh, The second phase can be even more difficult, though. Uh, The first phase is the clearing, and the second phase is holding. And some of these areas uh, will be very difficult, even for our on-the-ground allies who know the human terrain quite well and have an understanding of what would be involved for the counterinsurgency operations uh, to continue on after you've, you know, it's one thing to kick ISIS out of Mosul where it was in control. It was acting as the government in Mosul. It's another thing to then police the streets, deal with random suicide bombings and, uh, you know, SVB, uh, SVB IEDs, uh, suicide born vehicle, uh, suicide vehicle born improvised explosive devices. Those are all challenges that will continue on. So Trump says he's going to destroy ISIS. Uh, They're doing it right now in Iraq and Syria. That has been underway for some time. We'll see, though. There is the possibility of an expanded U.S. role in uh, Libya. Well, not in Libya, in Yemen. Uh, That's possible with this administration, given some of the dynamics at play. And also, we're going to have to look at the Iran agreement. Uh, Secretary of State Rex Tillerson has been talking about it in recent days. And... He said that Iran so far has complied, but then there's been a change in tone. Now they're saying that they haven't necessarily complied. We will get into this and much more coming up. 844-900-2825. Back with the team in just a few. He's an ex-CIA officer who knows how to outsmart the enemies of liberty. But I do have a very particular set of skills. Buck Sexton with America Now. Team, your mission, should you choose to accept it, call the Freedom Hunt Operations Center. 888-900-BUCK. Make contact. Unless you're under hostile surveillance. 888-900-2825. Everyone, we are joined now by Michelle Malkin. She's a conservative blogger, syndicated columnist, host of Michelle Malkin Investigates on CRTV. Her latest piece, Chelsea Clinton's cheerleading cult. We want to talk about that now. Michelle, thanks for calling in. Hey, thanks for having me. So I saw the magazine cover and I thought, well, so so Hillary gets to be like uh, the the grandma in, in the biker jacket now because she's cool. And now Chelsea gets to be on the cover of a magazine. It didn't really, it looked like someone had photoshopped uh, a lot of it, but uh, what is what is this all about? She said she's not running. Why do we have to see her on Variety magazine? Because the Hollywood media complex is going to do everything it can to uh, prop up a Chelsea Clinton campaign. And uh, we've we've seen it over the last uh, several months 
the variety cover is, is just uh, the tip of the iceberg. I mean, you have a, a reporter at, at the Hill who's done dozens of, of stories on, on every breath that Chelsea Clinton t- uh, takes, every tweet, every thought about books that she thinks everyone should read. Uh, and then, of course, all of her multi-million dollar book contracts uh, for opuses that sink like lead <laughs> in the marketplace. Um, it's stunning. She's uh, going to be receiving an award tomorrow in New York City, um, sponsored by Variety and apparently Lifetime Channel is involved as well, uh, rewarding her for her humanitarian work, Buck. <laughs> so this is from her time at, at the, the Clinton Foundation, which, based on some of the emails that we all saw in the in the, uh, in the general election that came out, where she was not exactly a beloved figure and it did not always seem like charity was first and foremost on her mind while being one of the top people at this, I, I believe, multi-billion dollar charity in terms of the money it has raised over the last decade or so. Yes, that that's right. Um, she is Princess Do-Nothing, and she uh, failed upward after uh, inheriting a, a position at the McKinsey Consulting Firm uh, and then a six-figure salary to do a couple of stories at the today i think it was 600 grand and i think she was on air for less than half an hour in total which in (laughs) in media world that i gotta say that's a gig that i'd be psyched to have (laughs) great non-work if you can get it buck 600k uh, of course, um, you know, sitting pretty at the helm of uh, the Clinton Foundation and the Clinton Global Initiative, um, money which was siphoned from all of those high-dollar donors uh, to help subsidize her wedding. That's humanitarian work, progressive style. Yeah, I have pointed out to this audience before that the Clinton Global Initiative, which I've spent some time on the website to see, it took on uh, issues that are very vague but gra- you know, very grandiose at the same time. And we're going to empower women around the world, going to work on development projects around the world, but tackling the toughest global problems. They just shuttered the CGI. That's done. So I, I guess those global problems were all solved after Hillary became, uh, became the not president of the United States. Uh, but 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 I want to also ask why is there this uh, clinging to the Clinton brand? It, it it is it is somewhat remarkable to me that after two incredible uh, election campaign failures, right after being the presumed next president of the United States, not once but twice, Hillary Clinton is for the left still. Uh, I don't know how to say it, still a winner, it seems. Or is that just transitional until they can create Elizabeth Warren in the image of the progressive left as the next standard bearer? I have no idea. It's pathetic. And I don't understand the Clinton obsession either. They're they're really scraping the bottom of the Clinton peanut butter jar here with, with Chelsea Clinton. And as I mentioned, she's She's Bill Clinton without the charm. She's Hillary Clinton without that ruthless focus. And she's full Billary, the two of them, in her bottomless well of political entitlement and ideological hackery. There is really nothing to recommend this woman for for public life, let alone the private sector. And I'm really trying to be as as generous as possible here. Yeah, I know. You you don't want to be mean, Michelle, and neither do I. But when someone inflicts herself or himself, but in this case herself, 
on the public, on matters of policy, trying to influence opinion, and holding herself up as someone that anyone should listen to. I would not take advice on where I should go out to eat and get some pizza on a Friday night from Chelsea Clinton. There is nothing that she has to teach me. There is nothing that I would want to hear from her. But then she goes out there to give gems to Variety magazine like, quote, I think it's a real challenge to anyone who thinks this is not the moment to stand up and speak out because this is certainly not the moment to be silent. We need everyone to rise up. Yeah, you go, girl, with that revolution from your uh, $10 million condo overlooking Madison Square Park that your parents bought for you. Yes, right, exactly. You know, the other thing, of course, this, this whole episode exposes is, it, is the double standards and, and the hypocrisy of all of these um, liberal zealots in the press who rage about Trump's children's nepotistic advantages and then say nothing about clinton privilege uh you know you know let alone the idea that she's some sort of feminist hero it i i i'm just astonished by it i I i'm not i'm not pro nepotism but i think that it's fair to say in the case of of the trump children they don't get they're we're not always being told that they are uh geniuses and that they're going to save the country before they've done, you know, before they even tried to do anything with Chelsea Clinton, it's like she's staying at home counting the money in the trust fund and occasionally pops up to give us all a lecture. And the media treats her like she's already saved the country. So I think there's obviously an imbalance in the way that they that they treat the kids of the two biggest political dynasties in the, in the country right now. Uh, but I also want to ask you, Michelle, while I've got you uh, on the line, um, about what you think the Trump administration is doing and uh, how it's going so far with the immigration policy. I know there's something that uh, you follow very closely. We've got this uh, dreamer suit. What do you think about the administration's handling of immigration thus far? Yeah, it's a mixed bag. In general, I think that they're going in the right direction, more so than either the Obama or Bush administrations preceding them, uh, particularly on sort of what I think is low-hanging fruit, the easy issues. Yes, there should be uh, a better, stronger, taller physical barrier on the southern border. Uh, yes, ICE and the Border Patrol uh, need more manpower and help. Yes, interior enforcement matters, and uh, it both symbolically and practically um, not being afraid to use the laws on the books and enforce deportation and removal orders and do something about the hundreds of thousands of people who are evading uh, judicial decrees uh, for those deportation orders. These are easy things. So there's the illegal alien problem. Of course, we had Secretary Kelly and uh, Attorney General Sessions on the border to make a show of force against drug cartels. All of this is to the good. Uh, but then we've got uh, the legal immigration and foreign guest worker side. And I think that Trump has made some of the right steps in terms of uh, signaling that he's serious about reforming foreign guest worker programs. And that was the subject of my very last book, Sold Out, about the H-1B program, where, you know, the Disney workers, Southern California Edison, uh, even Harley Davidson tech workers, American tech workers, are, were being laid off, stabbed in the back, and forced to retrain their uh, foreign H-1B replacements before, um, you know, being kicked out the door. Um, but, you know, again, I think it's, it's, it's the speed at which he's doing some of these, these things that I think could be catalyzed better, um, but at least it's in 
the right direction. Of course, there's going to be a hue and cry from the, you know, from the dreamer lobby, um, because you know, for once, these people are going to actually have to worry about the fact that they uh, violated not just one law. In, in, in the case of most of the people here who are illegally that got DACA and DAPA uh, benefits. They've violated multiple laws, both civil infractions and, you know, potential felonies to be able to stay in this country. The attorney general addressed this. Uh, Here's what he had to say. Play it. DACA enrollees are not being targeted. I don't know why this individual was picked up. Uh, Everybody in the country illegally uh, is subject to being deported. So people come here and they stay here a few years and somehow they think that they're not subject to being deported. Well, they are. Uh, they they are, and and I think people under the last administration began to confuse prosecutorial discretion with and, and prioritization with a change in the law. The, 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 the president was not able to change the law. President Obama could not just with a, a pen and a phone decide that people were here legally. Correct. And, uh, you know, uh, thanks to the federal judge in Texas, Andrew Hannon, um, that entire scheme of usurping what properly uh, uh, belongs um, in, 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 in many cases to, to Congress, um, to, you know, to enforce, uh, to have enforcement of those uh, laws, he was, you know, the Obama regime was, was called out. And I think, you know, these people have come to expect uh, as an entitlement that uh, are thicket of immigration laws are never going to be enforced against them. And, you know, I've, I've said many times over the years since I wrote Invasion back in 2002 that all of those statutes, you know, it's, it's uh, you know, Chapter 8, Chapter 18, so many of them uh, of these sections that are already in, in our laws. These are this is not a cafeteria menu. You don't get to pick and choose which ones to follow or not. <laughs> Rule of law a la carte. Uh, Michelle, one more before we let you go. Uh, how we're almost at a hundred days. I know it's an arbitrary, uh, an arbitrary standard of well, how's he done in the first hundred days? But since everyone's doing it, Michelle, first hundred days, how's this administration doing? Mm, I, I think I'd give them a B overall, and and I think that the grade has to be adjusted. You, you have to adjust. Um, for the incredible amount of um, propaganda and misdirection and hostility um, they have to face every day from a press uh, that warps uh, the truth, you know, to to, um, put its own narratives out there. The resistance is not just the Democrats. The resistance is Hollywood. The resistance is uh, the liberal media. And uh, I really think, you know, I mean, I was a kid during the Reagan years, and um, but well uh, aware enough to know that um, as, as, as difficult as it was for Reagan to do everything he did, because of the constant onslaught of 24-7 cable news uh, and social media, there has not been a, a, a president in modern American life who's had to um, struggle against that opposition um, as as, as extreme as, as Trump has. MichelleMalkin.com is where you can check out all of Michelle's latest writing. And also, she hosts Michelle Malkin Investigates on CRTV, which you can all subscribe to. Michelle, thank you so much for joining. We appreciate it. Thank you, Buck. Take care. Uh, team phones are open, 844-900-2825, 844-900-BUCK. Uh, we will be right back. i got to say, the tweet of the day has to go to, at least for my money, has to go to The Onion, the satirical uh, news site that uh, put out this this piece. 
Berkeley campus on lockdown after loose pages from Wall Street Journal found on park bench. Totally, totally nails it. Absolutely true. I mean, what they better bust out the hazmat suits if they get some National Review. Oh, old copies of National Review, perhaps even with articles written by by Buckley himself. It's like a nuclear fallout shelter must be uh, needed in that case. Uh, my understanding is uh, about everyone's been reaching out to Ann the last 24 hours, Ann Coulter, because of the Berkeley, uh, Berkeley phenomenon of the, the birthplace of the so-called campus free speech movement is shutting down speech. Doesn't allow. Invite speakers and then disinvites them because students are going to be violent and destructive. That's pretty insane but that's where it is uh so we'll if ann has time maybe we'll get her to stop by at some point but she's been all over all over the media talking about this i my understanding is is why i'm bringing it up she's still going to go out there to speak so um that that may in fact happen we had heather mcdonald from the manhattan institute on recently she had a similar experience at claremont mckenna i think it was and ucla these california schools Amazing that these young, these young people in California is such a beautiful place and so much going for it. Such bad politics. What a shame. Uh, speaking of bad politics, the Democrats are trying to get stuff going. You know, they're, they're trying to dust themselves off after after uh, you know Russia stole the election from Hillary. I kid, I kid. But um, they're trying to you know get some momentum going, and they they've got DNC chair Tom Perez. Who's out there? Some there's some potty mouth stuff going on. He, he's cursing in public. This is the DNC chairman. Um, so we have this bleeped, right? I mean, he's saying these these bad things, but yes, that's not appropriate for somebody to somebody to be out there representing the DNC with with the potty mouth stuff going on here. That's not cool. But here's what he said about Republicans. Those Republican leaders and President Trump don't give a about the people they were trying to hurt. I mean, really? That's what he's out there. That's what he, that's how he's getting people uh, fired up. Um, but you got Bernie Sanders. That's right. He's still around. He's still here. He's still a part of the DNC, technically, although he doesn't necessarily wave that Democrat flag particularly high. Um, he was asked whether he calls himself a Democrat when he's on this. U- it's a unity tour, everybody. It sounds like something that uh, Aldous Snow, who's the rock star played by the guy who used to be married to Katy Perry, whose name I forget right now. What's his name? Um, Russell Brand in the movie Forgetting Sarah Marshall, which I very much enjoy. A little raunchy, but I very much enjoy. Uh, it sounds like Russell Brand would go, like a unity tour, you know, do you like unify people, you know, like, like unity is the purpose of the tour. Uh, but you got Sanders on this unity tour moment where he can bring everybody together be like that's right it's bernie's party baby uh and instead well we get this from the burn do you consider yourself a democrat no i'm an independent bernie no i'm an independent i mean he's a democrat socialist but look at him with this i'm an independent oh above the fray of the democratic party i have to say uh, the the democrat pundit journalist people that i know and and a few of them i even like are, they're still very upset about this this old bernie thing that's really what that's why they're on this unity tour there's a there's some healing that needs to happen here between the pro hillary apparatus uh that that failed not once but twice 
You know, as Bush said, fool me once, can't can't get can't get fooled again. The uh, the Democrat voters got fooled again with Hillary. Second time around, not a charm. Did not work. Uh Hillary and charm. They go together. Um so you had Sanders saying he's not a Democrat. And then to top it all off during this unity tour, it's like a tour where there's a lot of unity, you know, it's like unification of the Democrat Party, Aldous Snow. It's like I'm playing gigs for the Unity Tour. Um, you got the Unity Tour happening, and you got Sanders and Perez. Uh, and finally, Perez thanks Bernie for, let's be honest, unleashing some of his star power here. Because Bernie to Democrats is, I mean, it, it's the closest thing they've got to a rock star right now. Uh, Bernie, it, which isn't that amazing when you think about it. You know, he's amazing. Uh, but this is how it went when uh, Bernie thanked Perez. 68, please. Thank Tom Perez for his remarks. Boo. He's getting booed. So, you know, while it, while it's fun for the Democrat media establishment to constantly point at the divisions within the Republican Party and to try to uh, say that there's inconsistencies with Trump's previous rhetoric and that he's not keeping promises and that he's a bad guy, all that stuff. Let's understand that there was a, there was a, something of a, of a suppressed civil war within the Democrat Party, um, politically speaking, and it, it is not completely resolved yet. Bernie Sanders, in a free and fair and open election, dare I say, which it really wasn't on the Democrat side. You had in all those super... I remember being over at CNN talking about the Democrat side of things with some of the Democrat strategists. And I'm like, so the superdelegates, you just have a bunch of people that are like party Democrat folks that get to just be like, well, we're going for Hillary, even though no one has voted for us to say we can vote for Hillary. That's an interesting... That's an interesting little... And there was hundreds of them, right? Uh, so it was anyway, it's fun to point out that they still have their their own problems. They need to get their house in order. They need to come up with a candidate. I guess maybe it'll be Elizabeth Warren. Mm, that'll be interesting. Um, I want to talk to you about Iran. I know we said we mentioned that before. Iran policy, the Iran deal. Obama said it will stop them from getting nukes. That was the promise. Well, they also said that about chemical weapons with Assad, that they were all gone. That was a lie. Is the nuke deal a lie? We'll get into it. Stay with me. Buck Sexton with America Now. We are gold. The Freedom Hut is fired up as Team Buck assembles shoulder to shoulder, shields high. Call in 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. An unchecked Iran has the potential to travel the same path as North Korea and take the world along with it. The Trump administration has no intention of passing the buck to a future administration on Iran. The evidence is clear. Iran's provocative actions threaten the United States, the region, and the world. The Trump administration is currently conducting a comprehensive review of our Iran policy. Once we have finalized our conclusions, we will meet the challenges Iran poses with clarity and conviction. Is the Trump administration going to keep the Iran nuclear deal or toss it out. That's the question we want to address, and we're joined by Dr. Jonathan Shanzer now to help us with it. He is the Senior Vice President at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. He's also worked as a terrorism finance analyst at the U.S. Department of the Treasury. Uh, Jonathan, great to have you. Thanks, Buck. Good to be with you. 
Uh, so we heard from uh, we heard from Secretary of State Tillerson there, and we also have Donald Trump earlier today saying the following: Not living up to the spirit of the agreement. I can tell you that, and we're analyzing it very, very carefully, and we'll have something to say about it in the not too distant future. But Iran has not lived up to the spirit of the agreement, and they have to do that. I'm I'm a little confused here, uh, Jonathan. A, a couple of days ago, I think they said that Iran was fulfilling its obligations, or, or rather, we were told that Iran was fulfilling its obligations under the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, the JCPOA. They could have come up with a cooler acronym, but anyway. Uh, and then we're hearing Trump say that they're not living up to the spirit of the agreement. Which is it, or is it both, or what's going on? So these are all great questions, and I think the answer is all of the above. And it's, it's a little complicated, but, but bear with me. So uh, on the one hand, the Iranians are abiding by the actual terms of the deal. In other words, they've mothballed a bunch of their nuclear facilities. And they have, well, there have been a few infractions where they've gone a little bit over with uranium or heavy water, but they have notified the right people and they've taken care of the problem. I personally think there should have been sanctions for those, but it was ironed out. Uh, and overall, they appear to be hewing to the letter of the agreement as such, and that's why it is difficult for anyone to go after them for you know, gross violations. Now, that said, the, uh, the U.N. resolution that codified the deal called upon Iran not to test ballistic missiles. Now, there is some debate among U.N. scholars about whether that was a definitive call or a suggestion Most people think that it's more of a suggestion. But as we know, Iran has been testing those ballistic missiles. And typically, when people talk about violating the spirit of the deal, this is what they're referring to. What they're basically doing is mastering the delivery system for a nuclear weapon at some point in the future. And, of course, the entire deal was structured so that Iran could continue to develop all the technologies that it needed so that in 15 years or so they would be able to completely master the nuclear cycle and be able to be at least a turnkey away, sort of the way that Japan is. Of course, Iran is nowhere near a peaceful country the way that Japan is. So we have all of that. And then there is the broader plan that I think the Obama, or rather the Trump administration, has to undo what the Obama administration had done, and that is to impose non-nuclear sanctions against Iran. What would that What would that look like? And by the way, isn't there a separation already between sanctions on the uh, on Iranian conventional weapons activity versus the sanctions of the nuclear program? Or what What is the either link or separation between those two currently? Right. So this is exactly I mean, this is part of the deal that in four years from now, the ban on weapons is going to be lifted. And, and, and basically, Iran will be able to buy and sell weapons all over the arms market. And that's one of the things that they got as a result of the deal. In seven years, the ballistic missile um, ban is going to be lifted. And so they'll be able to develop ballistic missiles legally. All these things are part of the deal where things sunset over time. And it's why so many of us thought that the Iran nuclear deal was such a bad deal because it gave Iran everything that it wanted. Just, you know, it just takes a little bit of time for them to get to the finish line. But the plan right now, as we understand it, for the Trump administration 
is that they are going to start imposing uh, sanctions on things that are completely not included in the nuclear deal. I mean, we were unhappy when the nuclear deal was signed, for example, that it didn't address Iran's support for Hezbollah, for, for Hamas, for the uh, Iraqi uh, terrorist groups that were attacking U.S. servicemen, uh, that it didn't address Iran's support for the Assad regime in Syria and the slaughter there that it didn't address Iran's support for the Houthis in Yemen or its human rights violations or cyber activities. All of those things were left out of the deal, and, and so people were really unhappy. But here's the good part, is that legally we can sanction them still for those activities according to the JCPOA. And so uh, my sense right now is that the Trump administration is gearing up for those non-nuclear sanctions where they can really hammer the, Isra- the Iranians for all of the things that they've been doing all along, that should have been part of the deal, but never were included. Is it fair to say that in the in the short term, it benefits Iran to abide by the deal, that it would be even from the, the craziest uh, maniacal mullah's perspective, violation isn't in their interest right now? I mean, based on what you're telling me, playing this out and trying to get a greater relaxation of other sanctions and going along with the timeline would be the smart strategic move, especially if they're playing the long game as they have been, and we're not going. We wouldn't see violations then for quite a while. Or, or, or is there something that you think might happen before then? Are, are they going to get antsy? Are they going to get impatient with this process? They would be dumb if they got impatient with the process because they're going to get everything they want, right? They were given uh, the sanctions relief, and they're still getting it, right? I mean, you know, companies are still. Uh, slowly finding their way back into Iran, doing business with Iranian companies, and, and they're still waiting for the full payout from that. They've got the sanctions relief cash that we've provided for them. And then again, you have the the, uh, the lapsing of the arms embargo, the ballistic missile embargo, and then a lapsing of the actual um, restrictions on nuclear development, which comes in roughly a decade or decade and a half. So if they just wait for 15 years, they will have all of their money, they will have all of their weapons, and they will have a nuclear program. Now, there are analysts that I have talked to, uh, in fact, one who was involved in brokering the deal, who told me that he believed that in roughly three to four years, the Iranians will start to cheat. Not rapaciously, but they'll cheat at the margins. And essentially, what that will mean is that Iran has gotten most of what it wanted. It will have most of the cash, most of the sanctions relief, and that's where they'll start to test the limits and to find out whether, for example, the Europeans or Democrats, for that matter, uh, try to prevent uh, you know, those who would try to hold Iran to account. They would say, look, we don't need to go to war over such a small violation. Let's look the other way because there's going to be so much investment in Iran and because so much water will have been under the bridge. So, uh, but, but that's essentially when I would expect them to cheat, certainly not now, while they're gaining so much from this nuclear deal. But even, if, even then, I, I don't think it's a smart move for them because they're going to go nuclear in 15 years. That's a blink of an eye. We know that Secretary of Defense Mattis was in uh, Saudi Arabia earlier this week, and he's calling for a political solution in Yemen. Uh, I've seen some uh, that are worried that the Trump administration may get more. Look, we can call, calling for political solutions is a, is a no-cost, nice thing to do for a whole bunch of conflicts, right? But in this case, do you think that the U.S. might decide that we have more of an interest in Yemen, or do you think that, uh, or rather, the Trump administration will decide that? 
I, well, look, I, I think the Trump administration has already indicated that it does have an interest in Yemen, uh, but maybe not necessarily for all the reasons that the Saudis would hope. I mean, look, they're, they're, I think the U.S. is certainly unhappy about the Iranian support to the Houthi rebels there. But I also uh, I think we've seen an interest in al Qaeda of the Arabian Peninsula, that the first raid that the president conducted uh, was the one that took place in Yemen against al Qaeda. That that splinter group of al Qaeda is probably the group that is most equipped to carry out attacks against the U.S. homeland. Uh, So what I think this administration wants to do is to try to bring about greater calm there, have greater visibility on all the various factions that are operating in that theater and I think continue to take them out. I don't think, though, that Iran's activities there are the number one threat for the United States, at least not the way the Trump administration sees it now. Jonathan Shanzer is a vice president at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. He's at Jay Shanzer on Twitter. Uh, Jonathan, thank you so much for joining. Great to have you. Anytime. Phone lines are open here, teammate, 44900-2825. Also, uh, please do check out bucksexton.com. Site is up and running. I wrote earlier today on taxes. You'll be seeing more writing from me and the whole Freedom Hunt team at bucksexton.com every day going forward. So uh, do check it out. And we're going to get an email list going as well for the newsletter. That's going to be fun stuff, too. We'll be right back. Wanted to revisit the Hillary situation here for a second. Uh, we talked about Chelsea earlier uh, on the show with uh, the uh, wonderful Michelle Malkin. Um, but there's this book that's out, Shattered, inside Hillary Clinton's Doob campaign. I know this is the second day that I'm mentioning a book that I have not yet read. And a, a vast majority of the time when I'm on this show, um, and I talked to you about a book. It'll be a book that I have read, I promise. And the books that I've mentioned in the past are books that I have read and enjoyed very much. Um, but this time around, I, I guess I need to get a copy of this one. And we should invite on the uh, the authors. Although, oh, yeah, yeah, okay. We already did. We already did. The team here is a step ahead of me. Uh, we invited on the author at a minimum because sometimes the publisher will send the publisher will send a uh, free copy of the book, which is nice. Uh, because I doubt that this is... Uh, going to tell us all that much we don't know in terms of the the character and nature of the players involved. Let me give you a little sense of what I'm talking about here. This is from The Hill, uh, the Hill website. Uh, quote, it offers a glimpse of the dynamics inside Team Hillary. This is about the book. After the loss of the Michigan primary from shattered inside Hillary Clinton's doomed campaign, not, which is the uh, which is the book that's out by Jonathan Allen and Amy Parnes. Uh, not only did Hillary and Bill Clinton blame everyone around them for her failures, Hillary meted out childish revenge during a subsequent debate prep. I I there I would so like to see this video. I know it doesn't exist, probably. Although, did they videotape debate prep? Very possibly. Um, I just caught myself in that one. Is it possible that debate prep was something that was video? We'll never see it, of course. This is we'll never get it. But I would love to have seen this. But here's the scene, as written in Shattered Inside Hillary Clinton's Doomed Campaign. We'll see. I'm uh, Jonathan Allen. I think they're they're like leftists. I think he writes for Politico or something, right? So they probably yeah they probably won't do right wing stuff. But that's all right. I mean, I'm not even right wing. I'm just reasonable, just a reasonable guy who 
reads and researches and knows some things about some stuff, you know? And and I'm very, very friendly to everybody that we invite in the show until they are not friendly. But I'm, I, you guys know this, listening, you know, I'm very friendly to everybody when they call in. And I'll, I'll even invite on some Democrats. I'll even occasionally bring on some, uh, you know, interesting left-wing prof- uh, professor type. So... Uh, here, oh wait, okay, sorry, back to the book. I'm, I'm, I'm digressing, I need to stay on task. Uh, here's what it says. The blame belonged to her campaign. This is an excerpt from the book. The blame belonged to her campaign, she believed, for failing, this is after the Michigan primary, for failing to hone her message, energize important constituencies, and take care of business in getting voters to the polls. And now, Jake Sullivan, her de facto chief strategist, was giving her lip about the last answer she delivered in the prep session. That's not very good, Sullivan corrected. Really? Hillary snapped back. The room fell silent. Why don't you do it? The comment was pointed and sarcastic, but she meant it. So for the next 30 minutes, there he was, pretending to be Hillary while she critiqued his performance. Every time the Yale lawyer and former high school debate champion opened his mouth, Hillary cut him off. That isn't very good, she'd say. You can do better. Then she'd hammer him with a Bernie line. I need to get this book. This is sounding like it will be enjoyable to read. Here's what I'm realizing. At first, I figured... Well, how much truth can there really be? You got political journalists, they're going to want access to the Clintons, and they're going to want uh, some connectivity to the Democratic Party's upper reaches going forward, as in they want high level access. They're not going to say anything that's really that, uh, that rough about the Clintons. But actually, given the Hillary Bernie dynamic and the need to re energize the Democratic Party, um, while I, mean, I, I think they want to leverage the Clinton machine, but energize it with the Bernie base. That's the idea. That's the the magic uh, trick that they're trying to pull off here. But that means that there will be some throwing of the Clinton campaign under the bus that is allowable in Democrat circles. It will be a, a necessary cleansing step for them going forward to try and find a way to bring all of the best that they uh, they can up against Trump and, well, uh, in the midterms before that, right? So I, I just found this exchange. This is everything that you think, you know, there's sometimes, I'm sure you've had this experience, you go on a vacation somewhere or you go, tr- forget about vacation, although that's fun to think about. Man, a beach sounds nice right now. Uh, but you go anywhere and it's exactly what you expected. Without having ever been there, it is, it is what you, it feels, looks, smells like what you thought the the place would, whether it's a place you really want to be or a place you don't really much want to be. Um, it's an interesting experience. You've had it just from looking at maybe photos of it and hearing about it. You kind of know what you're in for. And then that it is that thing that can happen with people sometimes, too. And I will say that for a long time, the more I have learned about Hillary Clinton, the more I know about Hillary Clinton, the more I'm like, yeah. That's exactly what I would have expected all along. Uh, and that lack of, of warmth and that lack of connection with voters, 
that people were talking about so much during the campaign. This was a very real thing. It wasn't just something that was brought up because we go on TV and we need to find things to say about different candidates. And let me tell you, sometimes it's not always you know, it's not always that easy. I mean, I've been in the position where they're like, Buck, Governor Pataki is a Republican candidate for president. What think ye? And I'm like, ah, he's not going to win? I mean, I know, it's, it's kind of a meh. Not, not really a lot of... It's tough to come up with uh, the the literary eloquence and brilliance of the funeral oration of Pericles or something when you're talking about like the likelihood of Pataki winning the election. But with Hillary, you kept hearing this, that she was um, going to be uh, or that she was in, she was not connecting with voters. She did not. And what you really find out at the end of it is she's just she's just not very nice. She's not a very nice person. Uh and not charming. I mean, there's some who will try to say, oh, if you're in your inner circle, she has such you know warmth. And, and then they always bring up Bill. You know, oh, Bill was amazing. I'm amazing. I mean, I'll just I'll give you warmth. I'll give you a hug. I'll bring you in so close. And, you know, you know, your 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 bosom up against my bosom. And, you know, we'll be all snuggly. I mean, yeah, Bill. Bill was good at warmth, I guess. But uh, different kind of warmth. Uh, Hillary was not. Uh, Hillary was not good at projecting. That sense of, yeah, as Bill said, feeling feeling the pain of the electorate. Instead, it was always Queen Hillary, and they were trying to hide that. Um, all right, hitting a break. Back in a few. He spreads freedom. Because freedom's not going to spread itself. Buck Sexton is back. Sarah Westwood joins now. She's the White House correspondent for the Washington Examiner to tell us what's going on down in our nation's capital. Sarah, thank you for joining. Thanks for having me. Uh, Okay, we are told that there is a new Obamacare replacement plan that Republicans have floated. What do we know about it and when do we think they'll take action on it? Well, we know that it's taking the shape of a lot of previous revived health care negotiations that we've seen since the talks originally collapsed on March 24th. Basically, conservatives want states to have the ability to opt out of some of these burdensome Obamacare regulations like community ratings uh, or some of these uh, ones that force insurance companies to provide coverage for all different kinds of conditions, no matter who you are. If you're a man, you have to buy a cover a plan that covers maternity care, for instance. These are the kinds of regulations that conservatives want to undo. uh, But some more centrist Republicans are nervous that if you undo just some of the regulations, but not all of them, then you're going to put the sickest constituents at risk. And so centrists like the fact that the new plan involves waivers that let states opt out, but more importantly, let states continue to remain under the regulations if they are nervous about the effects of repealing the regulations. So the waivers are what is creating the conditions for a health care bill to potentially make it through the House. It's unclear whether that's going to get done by next week, but it seems like Republicans are finally coming to a consensus. Where is the Freedom Caucus on this? We know the last time around they were none too happy with the GOP replacement bill. Um, What have we heard so far from them or have we heard from them? The Freedom Caucus has not walked away from the negotiating table, which has been good for President Trump and good for 
uh, centrist Republicans who wanted to who were nervous about some of the changes that Freedom Caucus Republicans were proposing. So the Freedom Caucus is in favor particularly of the aspects of the new plan that would allow states to opt out of the regulations. They like the fact that waivers are on the table now. Uh, the, the balancing act for Trump and other members of the GOP is if you I- introduce these more conservative provisions to the legislation, you don't want to lose so many moderate Republicans that suddenly you're, you're back to square one uh, in the sense that you don't have enough votes to pass it. The objection of the moderate Republicans is is what? Is, is it that they think that this is going to make uh, is it more of a process objection to this is supposed to be in phases and what we were hearing originally? Or do they just want to keep some of the some of the Obamacare mandate stuff? You know, it, it's looking more like the latter. Some of the moderate Republicans are nervous. If you repeal some of the regulations, but not all of the regulations, that you're essentially uh, putting some of the sickest people at risk. So, for instance, they worry that if you remove the provision, the essential health benefits provision that requires all insurance plans to cover all kinds of conditions, that insurance companies will respond by making the plans that do cover all conditions prohibitively expensive, effectively pricing people out of the market, and effectively nullifying the provision of of Obamacare, which is most popular, the pre-existing condition protections. They don't want to lose that, and they don't want to do anything to the healthcare system that could put those protections in jeopardy. And those that's the objections that we're hearing coming from the Tuesday group and some of the more moderate Republicans. And the White House is pressuring the GOP for a vote next week. That seems like a very ambitious timeline to me. That's a very ambitious timeline, because keep in mind that House Republicans will be up against a hard deadline because the government will shut down on April 28th if Congress can't decide on a funding mechanism that keeps the government running past next week. So this is something that they're going to have to focus on. Healthcare is really a secondary issue to most lawmakers. Why the White House is pushing this, though, is because on April 29th, uh, President Trump will celebrate his 100th day in office. It's a highly symbolic time frame by which most modern presidencies are judged. How much did President Trump get done in his first 100 days? Trump would love to be able to say that a health care bill advanced during his first 100 days. That's something they're obviously interested in doing, but not at the expense of a good health care plan and not at the expense of uh, a funding mechanism that keeps the government from shutting down. As for the, yeah, the possibility of a government shutdown or the passage of a continuing resolution to fund the government for a finite period of time, once again, is anybody, I, I haven't really seen much of this, um, but I've been looking at other issues this week mostly, is, is anyone even pretending that they're going to maybe let the government shut down or are they skipping that whole grandstand moment? You know, it's interesting because Republicans are adamant that they do want to try to get appropriations for the border wall, that they do want to try to get all of this increased funding for a military buildup done. Uh, Democrats sense an opportunity to put pressure on Republicans to get things that they want, though. So you could easily envision this leading to a shutdown fight. But there is also a chance that lawmakers will just pass a clean continuing resolution or a clean funding mechanism that keeps the government open without going to battle over things like 
funding for Planned Parenthood because there are other things they want to get done this year, like tax reform and like health care. I just can't imagine that the Republican-led Congress right now is going to allow the government to, you know, this time around. Now they've got a, a Republican in the White House and they're going to shut the government down. I, I just can't imagine they'd actually do it. I know they talk about it, but, you know, they, they can surprise you maybe on both sides of the, of the aisle. But uh, I think that it's, it's unlikely. We'll see. Um, but the Trump administration opening up a sweeping trade investigation. This is your piece on WashingtonExaminer.com. Tell us what's going on. Well, this is very interesting because the Trump administration exercised a provision of a decades-old trade law that allows the Department of Commerce to review whether a particular import of a particular item has a negative effect on the U.S. economy and on national security. And in this case, the Department of Commerce is doing it for steel. Trump spent a lot of his campaign saying that he was going to revive the steel industry in the U.S., that he was going to punish the Chinese for their unfair trade practices. Uh, and nowhere is that more evident than in, in Chinese steel imports. So it's very interesting that that's what the Trump administration is going to do, first in terms of trade, because there were a lot of other issues that Trump raised in relation to trade, including NAFTA, including TPP. But they're going to focus on whether these steel imports harm U.S. economy and U.S. workers. Do you have any opinion, Sarah, on whether Canadian dairy farmers are being unfair with their importation of ultra-filtered pa- uh, ultra milk? <laughs> you know, it's so interesting. That's such a niche. Uh, it's such a niche issue. But Trump went after it. Exactly. But you hear the president of the United States talking about it. We never would have seen that under any of his predecessors. And it's something that's united Republicans and Democrats. Chuck Schumer, the Democratic Senate minority leader, came out and said he's 100 percent with the president because there are a lot of farmers in upstate New York, where Chuck Schumer is from, who are harmed by Canadian dairy agriculture practices. So it's very interesting that this is a rare issue that has some bipartisan support. True or false, almond milk should be called uh, uh, almond drink or almond juice because it has nothing to do with milk. I'm going to go with true. That's pretty There we go. That's that. that's the right answer, Sarah. I just want to make, make sure we have we have clarity on that one. Milk comes from cows or at least from animals. I'll, I'll take goat milk. That's acceptable, too. Sarah Westwood, everybody, White House correspondent for The Washington Examiner. Check out her latest on uh, exam- WashingtonExaminer.com. Sarah, thank you for making the time. Great to have you. Thank you. And every time you leave your house, my friends, you probably think to yourself, um, have I done everything I need to to secure my home, my effects, my possessions against burglary, against uh, uh, smoke, fire, uh, against carbon monoxide? If you want a simple solution to all of those problems, something that can protect you while you're away and that you can just use your smartphone or log on uh, to the Internet and control your system, monitor your system, Simply Safe Home Security is the answer for you. It is simply the <laughs> simply the best. I keep saying simply, pardon me, uh, but it, it's round the clock professional security monitoring. It's just $14.99 a month. Fourteen ninety nine a month. That's all. Uh, you can set this up. I, I've uh, I've gone through this process myself. You set up your base station. You can set up uh, the uh, motion detectors on your windows, on your door. You put the smoke alarm and the carbon monoxide detector in place, and then it is all controlled by you. 
and there are no contracts, none. Get 24-7 connection to dispatch and lightning-fast response times and emergencies with Simply Safe Home Security. Order today. You'll get my special 10% discount. Go now to simplysafe.com slash buck. That's simplysafe.com slash buck for 10% off your home security system. Simplysafe.com slash buck. And we'll be right back. So the big news yesterday was that Bill O'Reilly is out and you saw many different responses to this of course across the media but also just across the land uh bill o'reilly was a uh, a ratings juggernaut one of the most well-known and most successful tv personalities of uh, a generation and well here's of course fox giving him a a pleasant uh some pleasant words as a send-off 50 Bill O'Reilly is leaving this chair and this network after more than 20 years. Bill has been the undisputed king of cable news, and for good reason. He is an incredibly talented broadcaster who raised the bar for interviewers everywhere. By rating standards, Bill O'Reilly is one of the most accomplished TV personalities in the history of cable news. In fact, his success, by any measure, is indisputable. So... Fox, he, he didn't have a last show at Fox, but uh, he did have some kind words from the, uh, from well, the chair that he had been in for so many years. That was Dana Perino of Fox News, uh, and she's on the 5, going to be on the 5 at 9 p.m. now every night. Uh, but then you, of course, can expect that people on the left will be enjoying O'Reilly's uh exit a little too much and viewing this as uh, an opportunity to say some pretty nasty things about the guy. And look, I, I've been watching on, on all the different non-Fox, non-Fox networks, and what you see happening are, are, I'm seeing pundits go on TV, people that worked at Fox or were paid by Fox for a while, to say that they were never harassed by Bill O'Reilly, but like they maybe totally could have been or something at some point. I'm like, well... Well, I mean, if you weren't harassed, what's, you know, why, why are you, how, how is that relevant? I'm seeing, and, and now, of course, everybody who worked at Fox that is at another network is being asked by one anchor or another, you know, were you ever harassed? Every female anchor, of course, were you ever harassed by, by uh, Bill O'Reilly? You know, every female contributor. Contributor is the term that we use in TV when you're on contract to go on TV as a, as an analyst or a pundit or. Um, as opposed to an anchor or a correspondent. Correspondent and reporter are basically the same thing. Uh, analyst is a, or analyst or pundit, you are under a contributor role unless you are a, an anchor. Anchors get their own shows, and so that's how we break all this stuff down. Anchors obviously get paid the most money, too. Uh, so there are some people like Stephen Colbert who are out there, and I see here's here's what bothers me about Colbert. And the way this is happening, you know, he's had O'Reilly on his show and he's been funny and pleasant to his face in the past. And now that O'Reilly is out, he's being pretty nasty about the whole thing. And it just strikes me as as cheap. And you get this a lot from the Democrat comedians out there where they go for the the easy and mean joke whenever it's at the expense of a conservative because it's such a safe move. It doesn't even have to be funny, and their audience is going to like them for it, right? They don't even have to be clever. If you come up with some variation of, oh, the Republican's such a dumb, racist, idiot, sexist, 
you can just say that and say it like that. And there are Democrat audiences. I mean, you look at the Bill Maher show and his audience, they think it's all so funny. Um, It's the same joke over and over, right? Republicans are dumb. Republicans are racist. Republican Republicans are misogynist. Republicans are racist. It's just uh, this is what's fascinating about it is that they're laughing at other people being stupid. But this is the joke that not so smart people laugh at. Right. This is that's the truth of it. Uh, But Colbert uh, was not magnanimous in the least last night uh, and was not even funny either. I watched the I watched the clip of his O'Reilly send off. Uh, Here's what he said. uh, Now, Bill and I uh, did not see eye to eye on anything. (laughs) I've done my share of jokes about him. I also stole his microwave once. It's a true story. You can look it up. But he's been a guest on this show, and I take no pleasure in his downfall, okay? I'm not going to sit here and publicly gloat. (laughs) Jimmy, can you take the camera off me for just a second? So, yeah, ha, pause for a second. Ha, 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 he's not going to gloat. And so they, they, the camera pans off of, of a shot with him in it. And I didn't see what he did, but I'm assuming he was, you know, dancing, laughing, jumping up and down. It's just childish, right? This is, he can't do any better than this. This is what he does when somebody else in the business uh, leaves after, after decades. Uh, under this, look, there was one settlement that was large and that, that seemed to be an admission of wrongdoing. He hasn't, nothing else has been proven here, although it's not your employer, you don't have to, the allegations are enough to fire you, that that is true. Um, it, 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 there's a clause usually in media contracts about, you know, Ill, coming into ill repute in the eyes of the community or something, like community standards, I don't know, it depends on your contract, but uh, so that that can just be that people think that you're a sexual harasser and that, that hurts the brand, okay. But then we can go on even further with Colbert's nasty little uh, tirade here. Play it. <laughs> yeah, so he's doing a dance or whatever. Oh, ha, ha. So they funny. celebrated O'Reilly's career, saying, by rating standards, Bill O'Reilly is one of the most accomplished TV personalities in the history of cable news. Yes. No, no, no. By ratings, by rating standards, he is. By moral standards, he was a self-righteous landfill of angry garbage. That's that's pretty that's pretty harsh. That's pretty low, isn't it? Even for Stephen Colbert. Here here he is with the tremendous platform of and mark my words, we're gonna see this, you'll see this over at Fox too. These big TV platforms, uh, the people that get these jobs think they're a lot more special and talented than they often are. They're just lucky. Stephen Colbert is lucky. Um, but he he's being mean here in a way that it's just completely unnecessary, right? I You know, O'Reilly is, I mean, he's getting a check for I don't know how much it is. I mean, the guy's already very rich, and he's going to be even richer after all this. But I would just think there's maybe some modicum of, of, professional respect that someone in Colbert's position and given the enormous platform that he has of what is it, the tonight the tonight show um that he might be just a just a little more gracious about this uh than he is i mean that what well, that last thing he said that wasn't even it's not even a joke he's just calling him a jerk he's just calling him a jerk and, and look maybe i don't i had said this yesterday to all of you i don't know riley at all I had no interaction with him whatsoever um but and I, I just think that this is poor form. And then it gets even worse. You have Mike Barnacle um, over at Morning Joe 
saying this, which is just to me completely inexcusable. Um, let, let me ask the both of you, as young women in this business, young women in any business, enduring what so many women endured at Fox. I mean, basically confronted with like a Bill Cosby uh, cable on cable. A Bill Cosby on cable. Bill Cosby is accused by dozens of women of drugging and raping them. Here is someone, Mike Barnacle, who is paid for his opinion on TV and is supposed to be ethical and measured and correct in what he says to the best of his ability. And he's calling Bill O'Reilly. Look, I let's say let's say that the allegations that we know about so far are 100 percent true, which is not proven. But I, I can understand why a lot of people would say there's a lot of smoke here, Buck. There's there's fire, too. Um, but let's just say that it's it's 100 percent proven. Um, making an off-color comment to a woman in the workplace or even telling a woman that you will advance her career if she is uh, if she engages in a physical relationship with you while illegal and gross and, and terrible conduct is not uh, drugging someone and raping them. I mean, that is first-degree felony life in prison kind of stuff, and that there'd be such a sloppiness that that kind of comparison would come out here just goes to show you that they hate, they hate Bill O'Reilly. They don't disagree with Bill O'Reilly, Mike Barnacle and some of these others. They don't disagree with him. They just straight up hate him, and they want to see him uh, not just repudiated as a result of losing his job because of these sexual harassment allegations, but they want to see him completely defamed and his character annihilated and make him an, really an untouchable in society. That's the plan if they can if they can get away with it. And I am troubled, my friends, at how effective the left is. They're seeing that you know they can't win elections, but they can get the media on their side to take out some very big targets on the right. And uh, I'm not saying that what O'Reilly did was okay, but I'm just saying they managed to make this whole thing happen, and we should have a moment of pause because of that. At least that's how I feel about it. Uh, 844-900-2825. 844-900-BUCK. Also, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Buck Sexton with America Now continues in just a few. Buck Sexton with America Now. We are gold. The Freedom Hut is fired up as Team Buck assembles shoulder to shoulder, shields high. Call in 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. Welcome back, team. I I often talk to you about how the media gets it wrong in one direction so often that if it's not fake news, it's false news. If we can't say definitively that they intended to be wrong, that they told a a knowing lie in one of their stories, uh, in one of their posts, uh, then at least it is the mindset that they carry around all the time that anything that Trump does must be plausible or anything that happens to this administration that's bad is deserved, is real, and they never give the benefit of the doubt that's impossible for them. Well, you have a a, a fantastic example of this with the Patriots. I'm not a Patriots fan, 
I'm just going to put that out there. I went to school up in Massachusetts, and I was always amazed that the University of Massachusetts, which was just uh, down the street, was a place where when the Patriots won, there was always the possibility of a riot. When the Patriots lost, there was always the possibility of a riot. It seemed to me that uh, Patriots fans, at least in the UMass Amherst area, sometimes needed to just calm down a little tiny bit. Uh, but, and of course, I grew up in New York City, so I'm a, either a Giants or a Jets fan, and clearly a Giants fan, uh, because the Giants are the only ones who stand to thwart the evil Patriots when it really counts at Super Bowl time. But that's, that's a story for another time. So the Patriots, because they won again, uh, they head down to the White House, and the New York Times sports writer thought, and, and this is not something that just came up out of nowhere, thought it might be fun to compare the turnout for President Obama in 2015, the, the, the Patriots turnout for President Obama in 2015 versus the Patriots turnout for President Trump today. And of course, in 2015, the Obama photo you have a, a, a solid group in the middle of, say, 30 or 40 individuals. But then you have Patriots players all the way up on the steps on the side. So there's the main group flanked by two lines of Patriots, old, uh, uh, not, pardon me, Patriot players on the sides. And then in the 2017 photo with the Trump visit, which just happened, uh, what was it, which, which just happened today or was it yesterday? Regardless. Um, they they show no such flanking of Patriot football players on the sides in the idea that... And this got retweeted 30,000 times. So a lot of people saw this. And, of course, the this is a, a sports writer who's making a political statement, re- really getting outside of his lane here, because the purpose of this is to show that the Patriots support... Uh, the Patriots like Barack Obama more than Donald Trump. Uh, whether even that's true or not, it seems unfair to base that entire assumption on a photo. But that's what this New York Times writer did. The New England Patriots themselves. I, I met uh, Bob Kraft uh, a few months ago at Fox. He's a very nice guy. He let me let me hold the Lombardi Trophy, which felt like a, a heavy the heavy metal thing that looked like a football, but you know, people get excited. It's the Lombardi trophy. So I, he like, let me hold it for a second and yay me, I guess. Anyway, uh, the, the Patriots team official account responded to this New York times post that these photos lack context facts in 2015, over 40 football staff were on the stairs in 2017 They were seated on the South Lawn. So they just weren't in this photo because of where they were sitting. It has nothing to do with a lack of attendance at this uh, at this event. And I'm somebody who, of of course, takes the position that, look, you don't have to go to the White House. This isn't compulsory. It's still America. right? But if I were a professional athlete, regardless of the politics of the administration and now we're invited to the White House, I would go. Um, out of respect, but I'm very far from being a professional athlete, so this is not something we have to worry about anytime soon. The New York Times sports writer here in question, uh, Colin Campbell. Oh no, I'm sorry, that's that's a politics editor at Yahoo. Pardon me. The uh, sports writer here 
Uh, I'm trying to get his name, but I'm actually coming up blank on it right now. I'll find it for you later. Pardon me. But he wrote back, um, uh, bad tweet by me, terrible tweet. I wish I could say it's complicated, but no, this one is pretty straightforward. I'm an idiot. It was my idea. It was my execution. It was my blunder. I made a decision at about four minutes that clearly warranted much more time. Once we learned more, we tried to fix everything as much as possible uh, um, and as transparently as possible. Of course, at that point, the damage was done. I just needed to own it. That was retweeted by Colin Campbell or, or tweeted out by Colin Campbell, who's a politics editor at Yahoo News, not the guy who put out the initial tweet, but he was the one who shared it and said that the uh, the New York Times writer was very sorry. I, I can appreciate very sorry. I, I think especially now it's. You know, if you don't do this for a living, I have to tell you, the pressure to be just a little social media machine all the time, tweeting and Facebooking and tweeting and Facebooking all day long, and uh, it, it's it's immense. And I think while it's very useful, and I really appreciate those of you who tweet at me or write me Facebook messages, and that's a very important part of my job, uh, it, it also can become a, a little bit uh, too much. Uh, it also can overtake far too much of your private time, your free time. And uh, there are also mistakes that can be made here. And when you're doing, you know, we call these hot takes on Twitter, right? Or I, I, I guess it's the same on Facebook. But when you're constantly trying to be witty and clever and quick about it or insightful and uh, illuminating and quick in your responses, you're going to make mistakes. So there's the part of me that wants to say, look, uh, this can happen. It's not a it's not a huge deal, and we really shouldn't make an enormous thing out of this because it's just a, a sports writer who was trying to score some cheap political points and got ahead of his got ahead of his skis to borrow a sports analogy. Uh, but then there are a few other things that I also have to keep in mind. It always happens in the same direction, doesn't it? Can you think of any? pro-Trump story that a major news outlet has run with, that they, um, a major left of center news outlet has run with, that they have ended up retracting. I can think of a bunch of negative stories on Trump, which is also a, f a function of numbers, I think, because there was a, what was it, a study that came out yesterday said that 90% of Media coverage of Donald Trump is uh, so far during his administration while he's been president. Forget about the primary and the general election. Ninety percent of media coverage has been negative. That was just on the Drudge Report uh, yesterday. So uh, among that very disparate level of negative coverage, sure, you're you're more likely to see retractions that are negative because you're much more likely to see negative stories. That doesn't seem to really justify or make anyone feel any better about this, or at least it shouldn't. Um, but I do also think that there's a mentality at work. Forget about the, uh, the negative uh, tone of many of the stories that are written about Trump and the administration. The fact of the matter is that there is a naivete, there is a rush to judgment, a passing and often uh, flimsy consideration for the facts as long as it is damaging. And in this not just 24-hour news cycle, but second-by-second second news cycle that we're all living in now, I mean, if you're whether you think you're a news consumer or not, 
you know, you can't look at your phone or be on a computer without someone trying to give you some information about the news. I mean, it's just all over the place. And that means that when you are exposed to a lie or to false information, it may take a while and you may never really see the full uh, retraction. So that's part of why those who support Trump, I think, find themselves saying, how upset am I supposed to be about what Trump says that the media is always claiming he's lying, he's lying, when the media is lying about Trump all the time? And they, they really are. It's, it's a recklessness. And if it's not fake news, it is uh, a lack of responsible, certainly a lack of responsible reporting that comes from animus. They just don't like this guy. They just don't like Donald Trump. And this Patriots photo example is just the latest. It's like the Winston Churchill bust, right? Which, oh, that was, they removed that from the, I'm sorry, the Martin Luther King bust, pardon me. The Martin Luther King bust, oh, they removed that from the Oval Office. No, they did not. Um, the Martin Luther King bus was not removed. A reporter just tweeted out, well, I didn't see it, so I thought it was removed. Hmm, that's interesting. Um, so you, you look back at these stories and you think to yourself, uh, hold on a second, why is it they keep getting it wrong in the same way? And I think it's quite obvious to us. So we'll call it out. We pay attention to it. It's not enormously important. Uh, each one of these stories on their own are not not enormously important, but when you add them all together, you see a clear narrative and a picture emerges of what's really happening with the media uh, that I have to say is disconcerting, disconcerting to say the least. Uh, all right, team. Hitting a break here. Uh, I will be back with you in just a few minutes. 844-900-2825. 844-900-BUCK. We'll be right back. And boy, do those staircases look empty in that bottom photo. Which means either football teams have gotten a lot smaller in the last two years or a bunch of players just didn't show up today. Uh, this was posted on the New York Times website today. Uh, it's, it's a picture comparing the Patriots' uh, turnout for President Obama in 2015. You can see that. And then you see the turnout of the Patriots. They were actually with President Trump today. Do you read anything into those two pictures, David? <laughs> no, no, not, not at all, Aaron. I think it's silly. It's a silly comparison to make. Uh, <laughs> it, it, it's just because it's silly. What, what, is, it's also what wrong. does it matter who the members of the Patriots like or don't like? Yeah, look, look at these, these serious journalistic outfits here, these serious news organizations running with the photo comparison story that was totally bogus. We love the Patriots here, brother. We love winners. Patriots are winners. Uh uh, and they, they have not yet gotten tired of winning either, from what we can tell. Ken in New York on WUTQ. Welcome to the Freedom Hunt, my friend. How you doing? I'm good, sir. Um, I'm going to ask you something. Um, have you ever heard of the Salem Radio Network? Uh, yeah, I've heard of Salem Radio, sure. I thought, hey, they're, they're probably the best you can get, I think. I mean, I, I think uh, I think Premier is the best you can get. But anyway, fair enough. Well, no, no. What I'm saying is, um, as far as uh, news reporting, I guess I've never heard um, too much junk on it. You know, it seems to be pretty clean, pretty good. I think Trump is doing a very good job. Okay, at least he's trying anyway. Yeah. And, no, I, I, okay. And another thing. Another thing too, and I want to say this too. Our country was founded on Christian principles. You know, I'm sure you've we've heard of Adam and Eve and you know and stuff like that. But in, indeed, see, the Bible, yes. 
That's right. We've heard of Adam and Eve, you know, and and we've got to get rid of this um, same-sex garbage because I don't believe in it. But anyway, um, you know, I want to. You, you know, realize that Trump is 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 okay with same-sex marriage, right? I just just if we're going to be if we're going to keep it real, as I like to say, and and be honest, uh, you ought to be rebuked. I'm just saying, Trump Trump is okay with it, so you should you should be aware of that. Yeah. We ought, we ought to we ought to rebuke him. You know, we ought to tell him that's not right. We ought to tell him what the what God's word. Well, what do you what do you like about what Trump has done so far? Other than right. let's take as a given that he's not. And by the way, I could I could sit here and tell you what I like about him, but I want to hear what you like. Um, he's not Hillary. He's not Hillary. He's not a Democrat. It's not the Democrats in control. That is all fantastic. And you know, there's a part of me that every day wakes up and is like, well, at least that's not the case. But what do you specifically like about what he's done since taking office? He seems to be trying to you know, close the immigration and try to, you know, get rid of the troublemakers the best he knows how. He's got to learn, you know, what to do and stuff. But he's, he seems to be trying the best he can, it seems. And what, what's the single most important issue to you when it comes to Trump uh, and what he's trying to, what he's trying to accomplish? I would say the, I would say the, immigra- the uh, immigration, he's trying to, you know, um, build a wall and, you know, close the borders and everything else. Mm-hmm. Why do you think immigration is so important? Well, we don't need troublemakers over here. I mean, so you think uh, it's a, it's a criminal it's a criminality issue? I, by the way, I, I'm asking these. Are, I'm not trying it, to cross examine you. I'm just no, curious. No, 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 no. It's it's a it's a criminality issue with troublemakers with the drugs and the killers and all the bad yeah cartels and all the, all the drugs coming in and and no, I I understand. Well, all right, Ken, I I appreciate you. What part of New York are you calling it from? I'm calling from Utica, and I want to say I want to say one thing before um, I leave. Okay. <laughs> okay. 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 Can you you seem like a man okay. who's determined? Go ahead. Yes, I am. We we were founded on Christian, Christian principles. Now God so loved everybody that's listening to Buck Sexton. You know, it's God made everything in this world, in in everything on radio and everything else. He so loved everybody that is listening to Buck Sexton. That he gave his only begotten, that he gave his only begotten son. That's Jesus. He's a savior, not a cuss word. That's whosoever. Everybody who's listening to Buck Sexton, believeth in him, should not perish, but have everlasting life. And I think you know we need God's help to you know get this nation on track. And you know people in the Trump administration should have prayer meetings and they should get right with God and everything else because, you know, God's going to help us. I agree. And Ken, no. amen, and thank you very much for calling it from Utica. I appreciate it. We're, we're almost at uh, almost at time. But thank you very much for giving us a ring. I appreciate it. By the way, as a, uh, as a follow-up to what we were talking about earlier, I said Elizabeth Warren is likely to be the Democrat standard bearer in the next election, although, you know, well, she says no. So- But let me be clear, I am not running for president in 2020, but what I am doing is I am running for the United States Senate in 2018 from Massachusetts. But what I am doing, uh, she's, uh, this is the classic, I'm not running for president, but everyone knows I'm running for president maneuver, of course. Uh, I just thought that was, we we had that, we had that, I didn't even realize that that was something that came up over the course of today. Um, this is what, you know, the, the Democrats are trying to get their house back in order now after, and, and I think, and I asked this question to Michelle uh, Malkin earlier on the program, that the Clintons are mostly now, as a, as a political brand, the Clintons are a bridging mechanism for what was 
the center of the Democrat establishment to what will be, right? So that's why you have still Hillary out there speaking, but she's going to need to pass on, well, uh, the crown, I guess, would have been if she had won, but she's going to need to pass the baton to some other Democrat standard bearer. And that's, we're not sure who it will be just yet. Obviously, Elizabeth Warren is high on the list. Maybe Bernie Sanders makes another go at it, but it's fascinating to watch how there's not much of a Democrat bench to speak of right now. I, I don't really see, I'm sure people will start talking about Cory Booker again. There'll be some others, but right now it's just, it's just kind of a bunch of nothing going on. Not really much out there. Uh, so we will have to, we'll have to see. Um, I also was going to get to, I don't have time to get to the Valerie, Valerie Jarrett on election night quote, but that would have been fun. Maybe another time. Excited to be hanging out with you all tomorrow night here. It will be Freestyle Friday. It will be action movie quotes in effect. So if you think you can bring it to the action movie quote master, tomorrow will be your opportunity. Uh, you can listen to the iHeart, uh, you can listen to the show on demand, the iHeartRadio app. Please do. Also, you can subscribe on iTunes. Just go to Buck Sexton with America Now. And as I said, BuckSexton.com is alive and well, the website for the show, the uh, the center of the Freedom Hut online. You can go check it out there, BuckSaxon.com. Uh, until tomorrow, my friends, uh, as always, no matter what happens, Shields High.